Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Let's open with a prayer and we'll get rolling. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day and for the gift of life and for the gift of activity all around us. We ask you to be with all of those who are here doing your work. Be with those of us here in this room as we help to receive your spirit, hear your story, and have it inspire us to live the lives you would have us live. And of course, all of this we ask to the glory of your kingdom and in your son Jesus' name, amen. 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 Come on down. So correct me if I'm wrong, is the back, the back door's open right now? Yeah? Okay. Then I'm, Carol, will you do me a quick favor and pull that door? You can pull that straight out. Do it. You'll do it. Thank you. I know, it's a special secret door. So great to see you all again this week. Um, A quick welcome, if this is the first time any of you have joined us, this is still just the third week of this new Bible study, and so we're glad that you're here. I've had a number of people who had to miss the first two weeks who have listened online, and so I want to make sure you know that if you cannot be here in person, we always want you here in person, for sure. But if you cannot be here in person, please do listen online. We make the recordings available, and it will help kind of keep connected week to week so that you can drop in um, the next week when you're available and not have missed anything. And so we are continuing our study of Luke. This week we are looking at chapter 2. And as I've said before, the primary text of our study is always going to be the Bible, right? So please do read the chapter in Luke that we are studying each week. And if you would like to take that a step further, the Luke for Everyone text by N.T. Wright is going to be our companion. It is sort of like a commentary. It's not technically a commentary, but it is close enough. It gives us a chance to vet a little bit of what's going on in the chapter prior to our time here, and hopefully perhaps make some good questions, right? And so again, if if you are new, please sign up. There'll be a sign-up list in the rear of the chapel so that you, we can get you on our mailing list because we are still unsure where we may land for this study long-term, right? Um, we've got over 150, 160 or so people on our list now of people who want to plug into the study, which certainly not everyone will be here on any given week. But if we keep to that number, we may be able to actually relocate this study to the theater because the theater is stadium style, it's chairs, not pews, and although, you know, pews are fine, it's a whole lot nicer to sit in a chair for an hour than sit in a pew for an hour, and plus the elevation is good so that I wouldn't have to look like such a diva up here on the stage, Um, and it's got tech um, integrated into the room so we could show pictures and do things like that as we go, and so just stay tuned with your email. Make sure you're on the list. If you have not received an email from me or from Susan Kalen about this Bible study, please see Susan after the study to make sure that we get that fixed, because that's the way we will continue to communicate with all of you as we go forward. Oh, it lists chapter one twice? Okay. So, yes, that is a mistake. Um, So, today we will be talking about chapter two, sorry. Um, 
it's, it is, I know, I, I see that people back there, everyone going, dang, like you had prepared chapter one. I'm sorry. Um, we, we mapped it out. And I'm wondering now if we actually doubled up chapter one and maybe we could, because we mapped out the entire school year to in essence do one chapter a week throughout the school year so that we finish all of them by, by the time May comes around. Um, and so what we'll do is we'll, we'll hybrid today. We'll do a little chapter one, a little chapter two, um, especially because we only have about 45 minutes rather than a full hour today. And so maybe we'll bump the study and we'll finish chapter two next week. We'll see how far we get, um, not to disappoint anyone, um, because chapters one and two are big, right? There's lots of stuff in both of them. And so hold on to your questions from chapter one. Well, actually, let me start with, are there any questions for clarity based on last week that we can hit right away before we get into chapter two? Then we'll just jump into chapter two and we may not finish it all, I'll make sure that you know for sure over email what we will be doing and we will get those schedules corrected to you so that we have all of those correct. All right, so chapter two. Chapter one introduces the idea of Jesus, right? In chapter one, we get a lot of preparation. Luke tells us the story of Zechariah and of Elizabeth and of Mary and Joseph in order to set up the birth of Jesus in chapter two. Chapter two comes in three sections. First section is the birth of Jesus. The second session, section is Jesus's presentation in the temple. And the third section is Jesus lost as a boy and then found in the temple. So it's a big chapter. So I just wanna set that up for you in those three parts, birth, presentation, and then getting lost in the temple. I so hope I don't fall off this stage. I keep backing up really close to the edge. We're going to start with Jesus's birth. And Jesus's birth is a dynamic moment that only happens in two of the four Gospels. And so Mark and John do not have birth stories of Jesus. For Mark and John, they simply start with Jesus's ministry, right? Chapter one, they open up, Jesus is on the scene and getting to work. Matthew and Luke, for a reason we won't ever know for sure, decides that it's important for us to know how Jesus got here. They're creating a cosmic story here. And of course we know, based on what we've already talked about, that Luke and Acts really sort of part one and two of the big story of salvation. And so especially for Luke, Jesus's place, his arrival, his human birth is a critical moment. And it's told in a very dynamic way. Matthew has a, a lovely story, but Luke has got the real meat. So if you read chapter two, <laughs> because you were working ahead, apparently. Um, if, you, if you read chapter two, and even if you didn't, we all know the story of Jesus's birth, we think. One of the things I want to do is place this in context, right? Because context matters. The context of Luke's story is a historic moment in time, right? Luke does not just throw Jesus out into the ether. Luke creates a historic context for Jesus's birth 
We get that immediately when Luke says that Emperor Augustus called for a census and that Quirinius was governor of Syria. Luke is trying to make sure that we know again that Jesus' birth was real, right? The humanity of Jesus was critical to the entire story because we certainly know that one of the differences maybe perhaps the seminal difference of Christianity versus other world religions is this idea that God knows us. God knows what it's like to be human. And so it's very important, especially for Luke, that Jesus's humanity is laid out for us very obviously. And so it puts Jesus in time. Now a quick little contextual moment. History does matter. Augustus, as we know, was an emperor. Augustus did call for a census, but that census took place in 8 BCE. So we talked about the difference between CE and BCE, I think, in week one. So just a little recap. Before the Common Era is like BC. And then the common era is like AD, all right? It's just the snotty intellectual way of saying it. And so that's how you do it. So BCE, Augustus called for a census in eight. So in other words, eight years before the kind of traditional birth of Jesus at zero, right? Augustus did call for a census. Quirinius was governor of Syria, right? If Quirinius was a military leader, okay, he was not a civil leader. Quirinius was actually never governor of Syria. However, Quirinius was one of Augustus's most trusted leaders, and so he was present in the area. And there were two moments in time when Quirinius was yoked to the civil governor of Syria in a way that can somewhat validate Luke's words right here. That first, Quirinius was between 6 and 4 BCE, and the second was from 6 to 9 CE. So what scholars have tried to do is figure out when Jesus may have actually been born, right? Because they kind of go with the zero is probably not totally accurate, right? And so they try to link these two dates up here, Augustus's census and when Quirinius could have more or less been considered governor of Syria, even though that was never truly the case. And they've thrown out six-ish as probably around the time that Jesus would have actually been born. All right? So they've sort of made that about six. Now, again, I've said this to you in a different capacity, but I'll say it again. This is just for our information it's nothing to say that somehow Luke's story is invalid. 
But I love history. I love that kind of historic context. And it's important to me that we continue to work on uncoupling the idea of the historic infallibility of the Bible, right? For most of us, not only were we raised in a tradition that likely implied or made explicit kind of this historic infallibility of Scripture or inerrancy, you might, that might be a word we know, but we live in a world where most people think that Christians believe in the inerrancy or the infallibility of Scripture. And as Episcopalians, we just don't because Scripture is more important than that. Scripture is more important than to be inerrant. One of the things I'd like to say is that we should read Scripture literally, not literally. And so this helps us be as literate as possible when we read Scripture, knowing things like this, right? Hey, Jesus was still born. Jesus is still the Savior, right? All of that is fine. But I love putting things like this into context. And Luke said it matters because it was put in his story. And so it should matter to us as well. So we've got historic context, place and time. Now I want to do a very quick comparison of the birth stories in Luke and in Matthew. So if I were to say to you, tell me the story of Jesus's birth, right? Most of us would probably hearken back to experiences of children's nativity pageants or building the little creche scenes on the piano like I did when I was a child, that sort of thing right at home. And you get all the players except not all the players were in either gospel story right so in one gospel story we get people like the shepherds that's luke's story in another gospel story we get the kings that's matthew luke does not have kings and matthew does not have shepherds so it's important for us to just distinguish between the two. It's still a really great story to kind of meld them together, but if we're going to do a Bible study, I want you to know that the story in Luke is different than the story in Matthew, all right? And one of those reasons is because Luke is addressing Gentiles, right? Luke's primary audience, again, are people who are not Jewish. It doesn't mean that he's not intending for the Jews to like his story, But his starting place is to make sure that everyone knows that Jesus is for them. Whereas Matthew is really writing toward a Jewish audience. And so mostly Matthew is focusing on what would be most important to the Jewish people. In Matthew, there is no census. In Matthew, there is no Roman leadership. Augustus Quirinius, not mentioned. There is no donkey, there is no inn, there is no manger. Oh, that's kind of harsh, isn't there? Matthew has no manger. There are no shepherds and there are no angels at Jesus' birth. Angels to Mary and Joseph, but not at Jesus' birth. What happens in both stories is pretty much summed up in an angel comes to Mary and Jesus is born in Bethlehem. That's all you got. Every other detail you know of the Christmas story comes from one or the other, not from both. 
So when we start to, we're going to delve into Luke right now. So as we go into Luke, we already know the angel came to Mary. That happened in chapter 1. We're going to hear that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's it. Everything else we're about to look at happens in Luke only. So just keep that in mind. So in Luke, Mary and Joseph travel to Bethlehem because of the census. And why they go to Bethlehem, so remember, they live in Nazareth, but they travel down to Bethlehem, which is a good 90 miles, right? So that's not an, an easy trip, especially because Mary is pregnant, right? So they travel down for the census because Joseph is from the house of David, and the house of David is rooted in Bethlehem. So they've got to travel to Bethlehem for the census, which also reiterates Jesus's Davidic line. All right, so that's important both for the choreography of the story and also for the linking to David. Jesus is noted as the firstborn son of Mary. That's also important because Jesus is never referred to, never referred to in Scripture, in the Gospels, as Mary's only son. But Jesus is referred to as Mary's firstborn. And by even saying that Jesus was Mary's firstborn, there is the implication that she had others. And so I say that to you because, again, many of us kind of inherit a story that Jesus would have been Mary's only son. That is a fine story to tell, but that story is not from the Bible. The story in the Bible is that Jesus is, that Jesus is Mary's firstborn. And if Jesus were a good Jewish woman, she was not just having one child. So it's okay, right? Later on in the scriptures, Jesus refers to his brothers in a word that means like brotherhood, and Jesus also refers to some as his brothers, as in biological. We don't get the distinction in English because it just comes across brothers. But in the Greek, one brother means like friend brother, and one brother means biological brother. And so Luke starts that story off and sets himself up to have, for Jesus to have had biological brothers. That's really okay. That's okay. I want you to know, it's, it's, there's no her heresy here. So, Jesus is Mary's firstborn son. He is wrapped in bands of cloth and laid in a manger because there is no room in the inn. So we get the construction of the story that they probably found out there was no room in the inn at some point, right? There was no knocking on the door. There was no innkeeper. There's none of that stuff. But it's a lovely nativity pageant, right? So we, we understand that they probably figured out there was no room. So how'd they figure that out? Well, they probably showed up to an inn and were told. Okay, so that's not too far-fetched, right? What don't you see in this story that you see in every pretty manger scene? The animals. There are no animals here in this story. Now, could there have been animals? Of course there could have been animals. But there are no animals mentioned. And why I think that is probably intentional is because what is a manger? A manger is not a crib, people. A manger is a trough. 
all right? So what goes in a trough? Nasty old trash food, right, for the animals to eat. It is most likely that Mary is not placing her newborn baby on rotten old trash food, all right? She is probably placing him on something relatively clean, like maybe hay, all right? That is a completely legitimate thing to expect that she would do. If the manger is clean, it is also very easy for us to understand that there probably weren't animals there at the time. Now, would that have been a functional barn at some point? Almost certainly. But something's going on here where it was prepared and not being used at the time, which allowed Jesus the space to be laid comfortably in something relatively clean. All right? Again, this is, is just what Scripture says. Then we get to what I think is probably the best part of any of the nativity stories, which is the shepherds. So the shepherds play a critical role in this story because the shepherds hear from the angels who Jesus really is. And that's important for us to note. Right up to now, the implication has been made, but the shepherds hear it all. The angels show up in the fields. They call the shepherds in from the fields to come and see this newborn baby. Now, if we are good Bible study listeners, when we hear that the shepherds were called in from the fields because something special was to be done, is there any other story that we may hearken back to about a shepherd being called in from the field for something special? David. Good job. This is, again, not an accident. Luke is telling a story here that within the first two chapters have you thinking of Moses and of Abraham, right? We talked about that last week in chapter 1. And halfway through chapter 2, David. It is, that would have not been missed by any Jewish listener. Anyone who knew the old stories would get the explicit connection that he's making to Abraham and Moses and David, right? Jesus is something very, very special. And Luke wants to make sure you hear that. So again, Roman history matters here, right? What does the angel say about Jesus? He is the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord, right? What matters here is that we understand the historic context of who Augustus is. So Augustus is the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, as we remember in our Western Civ, was a leader in the Republic who made claim to and pushed Rome toward an empire, right? But when he did that, what happened? He was killed, right? So he was killed, and his death triggered what amounted to a civil war. And there were many people fighting for power, one of them being Augustus. And Augustus laid claim to the mantle of Caesar, right, of emperor. And when all of his foes were defeated, the most you know, famous foe being Mark Anthony, 
When all of those foes were defeated, Augustus became emperor and ushered in a period of peace and justice in Rome. That Pax Augustan is about peace. And people started saying that Augustus was a son of God, that Augustus was hailed as the bringer of peace and justice, the savior of the world, because of course the world was Rome. And so Augustus was the savior of the world. It is not an accident that Luke uses the exact same language to describe this baby. So in his story, he is using language anyone would have known was meant to be used for Augustus, but he's using this language for Jesus. Luke is, by the middle of the second chapter, setting up this cosmic battle, this power struggle between the kingdom of the earth and the kingdom of God. And Jesus is here taking the lead on this battle, right? And I hate using war language for this sort of stuff, but in essence, that's what Luke is doing here. So the shepherds have this beautiful moment where they're called out of the fields and they're told that Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord, and they go see Jesus in the stable with Mary and with Joseph. And Luke notes that they tell Mary and Joseph everything that the angels said about Jesus. And then Mary and Joseph were amazed, and Mary pondered all of these things in her heart. Jesus says that phrase a couple times. Mary ponders those words in her heart. That is said at least three times in Luke. I didn't actually look that up, so I'm saying at least three because it could be more than that. But I can think of, recall three things off the top of my head. So what this really means is that Mary's figuring out something about Jesus, right? In essence, what Luke is saying is Mary was faithful to God, right? Courageous in bearing this child out of wedlock. But it doesn't mean that Mary gets it all. And we're about to see that when Jesus gets lost in the temple. But Mary's figuring it out. She's getting little pieces of the puzzle along the way. And this piece of the puzzle from the shepherds is very important. That's the end of the first section of chapter two. Any questions? So question is, why focus on Joseph as the Davidic inheritance, right? So female lineage is not unimportant, but there is still a male descendant priority for families. We see that when Jewish men are presented with babies and are asked to name the baby. That's a claim of fatherhood over the baby. And so that's still important. We're still not in, a, in an equal society. Not only that, but remember Luke's emphasis is not on Jews. And so outside the Jewish world, even if in the Jewish world, female lineage is important, outside the Jewish world, that is certainly not the case. And so Luke is telling a story that although it has integrity within a Jewish context, it also is easy to apply outside a Jewish context. So it's important, 
Luke really is, I mean, I can't go so far as to say Luke is a feminist, but Luke definitely emphasizes the importance of women all along the way, right? I mean, Elizabeth is very important. The whole story of Elizabeth and Mary shows how important Luke understands women in the story. Because, you know, Zechariah kind of is there, and Joseph's kind of there, but up to this point, the women have been directing and leading this story, right? Which is different than Matthew. In Matthew, you get Joseph's presence much stronger than in Luke's story. And so it, at some point, we may study Matthew, but what you get in Matthew is Joseph's guidance all along the way. We get the, the emphasis of Joseph's um, hearing from the angel himself, we get Joseph taking them out of Bethlehem and flying into Egypt in order to miss the infanticide. Um, Joseph does all of that. Whereas Joseph in this story is, is there, but Mary's the one driving the bus. And so it's not that he's making some kind of, he's denying the importance of women, because I think if anything, he's emphasizing the importance. But he still has a job to do, which is he wants cultures that may undervalue women to still hear this story. And so he makes those links in order to kind of reinforce Jesus's uh, attendance to the law. And we see that in the presentation in the temple in the next few verses. Any other questions? So there's, there's the, yes, there's sort of the biological hurdle here that we have just said there's an immaculate conception, right? So Joseph is not involved. And then the lineage is traced through Joseph. So, right. I mean, it doesn't take a biologist to say that that doesn't quite work. But again, there is this, there is this fatherhood, especially at this point in time, and it is today as well, but, but there is a very clear understanding that fatherhood is not always biological. Um, and I mean, my gosh, we get that with Augustus as emperor even, right? Um, so, I mean, it is very common that being one's father, although it's probably a safe assumption there's a biological link, you shouldn't make it. You shouldn't make that assumption because people are raised in many different ways. And so even the adoption of a person as a child links them within the family heritage. Our concept of blood is different than theirs. It's much more about familial relation than it is biology. And so a biological father can deny a biological child and they're out. And a, and a, a man can adopt a child and they're in. So the adoption implication here is still very valuable. It does not preclude the heritage of Jesus. All right, so part, yes. Well, so, so the question is, is there a study that tries to link Jesus' descendants to him, right? Well, I mean, besides the Da Vinci Code and other things like that, you know. Um, 
so, so I will say that you really can't. Um, I mean, th that's sort of not a... It, we can be pretty... Well... I will say that we don't know... There is nothing to imply that Jesus had children, right? However, there have been plenty of people who have argued, and I think, you know, it's a very valid argument, that if Jesus were considered a good teacher, and he was in his 30s, and he hadn't had children, mm, he, he may have not been received as a good rabbi at that point, because... Children matter, right? I mean, it, it's, it's kind of a joke, but, you know, old world people, right? I mean, you all know I'm half Lebanese, right? So there's, there's this sense sort of in old, old world cultures, like, when are you going to have kids, right? I mean, it's lovely you're a professional, but, I mean, are you pregnant yet? Um, you know, there's this, there's this sense, like, until you have kids, you've not done your job, right? And that's still very Jewish, right? I mean, we know plenty of people who are Jewish in our lives or friends or maybe some in here. I mean, right or wrong, and it's, it's not, I wish it weren't this way, but there is still this sense of like, you can be lovely in many ways. You gotta have kids. That, that, is, that is a job, it's like a social contract almost, right? Having children is our responsibility. And so that's nothing modern. <laughs> that's, that's very ancient. And I think that one could argue that Jesus, having been recognized as being such a good teacher, a good leader, it would be an, a very unique thing had he not had kids. Okay, that doesn't matter. Again, that's one of those things where I mean, I would say who cares? You might care. And so know that nothing indicates that Jesus had kids, right? So go for it. Whichever you, way you want to land on that, it's no problem. Um, now, Mary's other kids. Like I said, there is language that pretty much explicitly says Jesus had brothers. And so I think that it would be it would be a little too far-fetched to think that she did not have other kids. Um, I think that she was too young and would have, I mean, conceivably would have remarried after Joseph's death, you know. But all of that is extra-canonical, right? It's outside the Christian canon. So you can wonder all you want, but I don't think that it should impact the story of the faith that we have here. Um, unless it begins to hang you up. And so that's what I would say, having been raised Catholic, there are some, there are many Catholic arguments that will die in the ditch of Mary's perpetual virginity, right? And that is just why. It, it doesn't, it is not a necessary thing to me. And I think as an Episcopalian, we can just simply say, A, perpetual virginity is a, is an anatomical claim. Mary had a baby. It's over, right? I mean, that's just, right? I mean, you know, you know what I mean? So, 
why make that a necessary part of the argument? Because I don't know that it matters. It really doesn't, right? Mary is a fabulous person, right? An archetype and an icon for the kind of person we can be. Whether she had children or not after Jesus, she still is that person. And so we can revere her, we can aspire to be like her, and it, the rest of it doesn't matter. And so why even make it the crux of any argument to me is, is just an unnecessary thing. Um, and so that's what I would take it, is that there's this historic context that I think keeps us from needing things to go too far, right? We don't have to take it all the way down that road because there is no purpose. And so just stop, just stop with Mary was great, right? And we're good, right? We don't need any more than that. Um, so let's, let's finish up. I do wanna make sure that we're out of here in the next 10 minutes. So, which is good. The birth of Jesus is obviously the heavy part of this chapter. The next two pieces of chapter two are really meaningful as part of the arc of the story, right? So Jesus is now here. And we get these two moments that begin to fill out his character, right? Who he is going to be. The first is his presentation in the temple. And like any good Jewish family, on the eighth day, they present their son at the temple for his circumcision and his dedication, right? That's just what you do. And why the eighth day, you may ask? Because after birth, a woman is unclean for seven days. So Mary can't be there at the presentation the first week because she has to be ritually clean and cannot be after she has bled, right? So, which is one of the problems because, you know, that's why women can't serve in the priesthood in ancient Israel because they're unclean regularly, right? So Mary, that's why it's an eighth day thing. So the whole family can be there, right? So Jesus is presented and we get this fantastic moment with Simeon, right? Simeon, who is a holy man, the Holy Spirit is upon him. He has been promised that he will not die until he witnesses the Messiah. Simeon is compelled to the temple that day. Do note, Simeon doesn't live there. The Spirit moves him to come to the temple that day. And when he sees Jesus and holds him in his arms, we get this fantastic little poem that any of you who are old school Episcopalians who know morning and evening prayer know the song of Simeon. Lord, you now have set your servant free to go in peace as you have promised, for these eyes of mine have seen the Savior, whom you have prepared for all the world to see, a light to enlighten the nations and the glory of your people Israel. That's good stuff. Simeon holds Jesus and realizes, ah, now I can go because what has been promised to me has been fulfilled. And again, we have this moment between Simeon and Anna, the prophet, a female prophet, don't miss that, who worships at the temple night and day, senses what has happened and begins to preach, right? Don't miss that little nugget there. Anna begins to tell people, right? So before we ever hear of John the Baptist preaching, Anna, is the prophet, potentially the first preacher about Jesus. And between Simeon and Anna, we get a moment where again, 
Mary treasures these words. She is surprised, amazed to hear that these people are speaking of her son in this way and treasures these words, right? Another little piece of the puzzle, especially for Mary. Then we get, which was always one of my favorite stories as a kid, the only story in the Gospels of Jesus as a boy. The only one. Not in Matthew. All right? Jesus is simply born, and they fly to Egypt, where you... Jesus was likely raised for a time before they come back, and then boom, John the Baptist. That's Matthew. Luke's got this little nugget right in there of Jesus in the temple as a 12-year-old boy, right? And the story goes that every year the family came to the temple for Passover. And every year they make a sacrifice. So before we get into the forgetting Jesus in the temple, note that we have a presentation in the temple and a circumcision and dedication and annual Passover visits by the family, including Jesus. Luke has, within just a few verses, legitimized Jesus's Jewishness, right? Jesus is a good Jew. That is being made explicit. He follows the law, as does his family. Everything has been done to the letter. And that's important when Jesus begins to skew off the rails, so to speak, or at least when the leadership believes that Jesus has. Because what Luke's really arguing here is that Jesus is a good Jew, he knows the law, and what he's doing is opening the law up for people to hear it in a new way. And so in order to open up the law, you got to know it. And so Luke is validating Jesus as a good Jew. So the family goes every year for Passover, but this is not just Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. This is the family, right? So this could be dozens, if not hundreds of people going to the temple, right? They're all coming down in a caravan from Nazareth down to Jerusalem, and they all caravanning back up to Nazareth. And what happens is you're sort of, I mean, those of you with big families, they've got a huge family, right? You sort of, when you travel with family, you just kind of travel together, right? And you don't necessarily know where everyone is all the time because you're just all there somewhere, right? That's what happens here. Joseph and Mary just kind of get back in the wagon and they start heading back to Nazareth and Jesus isn't physically next to them, but he, I mean, he's here, right? Because the whole family got in, the, got in the wagon. And so it's not until they stop after a whole day of traveling that they look for him and they can't find him. So they turn back around and then they find him in the temple three days later where he is preaching and teaching to the astonishment of everyone in the temple. Mary goes up to him, as any parent knows this moment, right, when you have lost the child, and she does not say, I lost you. She says, what did you do? Right? <laughs> I know that. Come on. We know that. And so she says to Jesus, what did you do? We have been nuts trying to find you. And Jesus has this very gentle rebuke of Mary. Why wouldn't you know that I would be doing my father's work? There is a subtle little twist here in the language. Mary says, 
Your father and I have been worried sick. And Jesus says, I am doing my father's work. All right, there's this little twist of the dial in this story. Jesus is starting to figure out what's really going on, right? Talk about fatherhood. Jesus is claiming a bigger parental role with God, relationship with God, beyond his biological or adopted parents. And so Mary is gently rebuked. And in this scene, we get very explicit foreshadowing, right? Mary thinks that she has lost Jesus and three days later finds him again. Don't let that miss you, right? Jesus was never lost. Mary only thought he was. And three days later discovers what? A different kind of Jesus, a more profound, more connected, larger version of himself in the temple, teaching in a way she would never have expected. This is just like what's going to happen when people think they lost Jesus, and then they find that Jesus has not been lost. Jesus has been transformed, and for all of our good. So I'll leave you with this. Jesus, in this story, challenges the status quo, challenges the understanding that people have of him, and that challenge will only grow and increase. Even at 12, Luke is making sure that we, the hearers, know that Jesus is doing something different and something new and something that will not be well-received by everyone, probably mostly by the people who think they already know the answers. And it's that kind of challenge that even here in chapter 2, we can begin to see through the veil that the way he pushes on people may end up being his downfall. Thank you all. Happy Wednesday. I'll see you next week.